0: We're going to be in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to do a verse by verse study through that, and we're going to do a flyover of 1 Kings 18. Something I would ask you to have prepared is also hold a place in the book of James. So, 1 Kings 17, and then hold a place in the book of James, and we'll look at some passages right there. I do want to take a moment. I didn't do this at first service. Please forgive me, whites, but. Uh, Shirley White was back in church at first service this morning. So we want to give a shout out for her. I told her that she's a miracle lady and she definitely is. So if you guys are watching, forgive me for not saying something at the first service, but we're so glad, Shirley, that you are back. And Bill, we love you and your family. So just wanted to celebrate that miracle that she's back with us. And 1 uh, Kings 17 is where we're going to be. Some of you may have seen that a, uh, the latest Pew Research poll came out and they have done a survey of Americans and faith. Um, here's what it said. In the 90s, 90% of Americans identified as Christians. In 2007, that number dropped to 78%. In 2022, the number has dropped to 64% of Americans claiming Identifying as Christians. Now we know the polls can be skewed and we know identifying as a Christian, what does that really mean? But let's just take the numbers for what they are. 90% of people in the 90s, 2007, it drops to 78%. And in 2022, 64% of Americans claiming to be Christian. At the current rate, uh, Christianity will be a a minority religion in America within about 20 years at the current rate. Now, this is a nation that was founded on biblical principles. The Bible was the textbook in our public schools. And we have drifted very far away now. And I was uh, listening to a news commentator, and he was saying that Americans have lost their faith. And he was asking questions like, how do we get it back? And what has happened to America? And he dropped the responsibility at the feet of us, parents, grandparents, etc. He talked about us being so busy, distracted. Maybe we haven't made it a priority to pass on our faith. But I would say as I look around this room, I know it's been a priority for many of you. And we can't control everything around us, but we do the best we can do. But this is the, these are the trends in our country. This is what is happening and that particular trend is nothing new. We're going to meet a man named Elijah. He's going to rush onto the pages of our Bible in 1 Kings 17, verse 1. And Elijah was facing a very similar time. In fact, Elijah will say in 1 Kings nineteen 10, I'm the only one left. I'm the only true worshiper of Yahweh left in the land. And we're talking about the covenant land. We're talking about the land of Israel, to whom the oracles of God were given, etc. You know the story. If it ha- can happen there, it certainly can happen here, and it is happening right now. And I will tell you this, it has happened in Europe. Uh, Europe, there's many empty churches now. They have lost, largely lost their faith and their way. Shane was in England, he did a trip, uh, he did a semester in England in Bible college, And they got to do some outreach, and they did some outreach in public schools. And Shane was saying that in the public schools in England, the kids don't even know the basics. They don't know anything about Genesis. They don't know the four gospels. They know next to nothing about the Bible. That's what can happen. In a place that once was really a light, uh, there was biblical light there, and now that light has really almost uh, disappeared. What are we to do? How are we to counter the spirit of the age? That's what Elijah was facing. And I would submit to you that there's going to be a link to the book of James. Here's the key verse, 1 Kings 18, 21. Here's what Elijah says to the people of his time. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Father, these are sobering words and they really do apply to our generation. And we desperately need to hear a remedy for the double-minded. And we all would confess, Lord, that we feel like we're that way probably quite a bit of the time. I find myself having to repent constantly of things, ways of thinking, and uh, the propensity to be double-minded, Lord. It's within all of us, I think. But we want to have single-hearted devotion to our God. We don't want to fall into the trap of ancient Israel or even the readers of James' letter. Would you help us? Would you grant us answers? We know judgment begins in the house of God. We can talk about the world all day long, but you address your people. Would you give us ears to hear what you would say into this hour? We know there's always hope for revival and restoration. There was with Israel, there is for us. We're asking for your help, for your mercy from heaven. Open our ears to what you would say to us today. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, Elijah is introduced to us in 1 Kings 17, verse 1, with these words. Now, Elijah, Elijah means my God is Yahweh, or Yahweh is God. He's the Tishbite. He was one of the settlers of Gilead. Some of the versions say he was of Tishbe in Gilead. A lot of research has been done to try to find that location, and scholars pretty much say we don't really know. What's interesting about Elijah, as famous as he is to most people who are familiar with the Bible, he barges onto the pages of scripture. We know nothing about his family. We know nothing about whether he was married, children, nothing. He shows up. We have learned something in 2 Kings about Elijah, that he's a really hairy man. And all God's men said, yeah, right? But now I should say he's either really hairy or he wears a camel's hair garment. There's a possibility of both. He wore a huge leather belt. It was from Idaho, if any of you wondered. And uh, he was a radical man of his time. He burst onto the scene when he is much needed. A voice is much needed. Here is Elijah, and uh, he says this to Ahab. Now, Ahab is a contrast to Elijah. Ahab has allowed Baalism or Baal worship to dominate the land. If you look back just for a moment at the end of chapter 16, take a look. It talks about Ahab, and it says, verse 31, It came about as though, sixteen thirty-one. It had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. It's speaking now of Ahab, the king of Israel, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Baal. You can see the dad was immersed in Baal worship. He was the king of the Sidonians and Ahab married his daughter. And he went to serve Baal and worshiped him. Notice, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. That's the capital of Israel at the time. Ahab also made the Asherah. That's another female goddess. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now Ahab had pretty much made Baal worship state mandated or it was state blessed, if you will. Here is uh, Elijah saying, my God is Yahweh. Here is Ahab the king saying, my God is essentially Baal. But what was happening in Israel is something that has been captured by scholars and others, and it's a word called syncretism. Syncretism is when one tries to sync up different belief systems and kind of meld them together so that one says, I'm spiritual without a commitment to any particular faith movement. We had a guy drop off a package here uh, during the week I was in the office, and Uh, he was looking for the entrance and he hit his, he hit reverse and he came to the front door and he's kind of a little bit wild eyed. He said, "Eh, what is this place? And I said, it's a church. Oh, it's a church. Okay. And of course, you know, that was an open door. So I said, do you go to church? And he said, no, but I'm bleeping spiritual. (laughs) I said, well, I can tell. And uh, so he's a pretty funny guy. Anyway, so we started talking and he said, oh, I have uncles that say this is the right religion and aunts that say this is the right religion and they just go off and everybody's got their opinion and I've just, I just thrown up my hands and I'm, I'm just spiritual, man. I'm spiritual. And I said, well, what do you believe about Jesus? And I would submit to you that whenever you're talking to someone who's kind of just everywhere, just come to Jesus. Jesus is the gospel, right? And so I said, you know, Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. And I said, do you have a Bible? And he said he had a couple of Bibles actually in his car. I said, would you please go read the words of Jesus in John chapter 14 and just think about what he said because he claimed to be the exclusive way to God. And that's kind of how we left it. But I, I think that young man probably captures a lot of culture today. People are not necessarily all outright atheists, but they're moving towards this kind of uh, uncertainty in fact, there are some college professors that are saying that their goal with our youth, please hear this, is to have them celebrate the idea of uncertainty. They believe that that's one of the great pillars of our day. If you can remain in uncertainty, you're doing great. I would argue that uncertainty is not a virtue. It will, it will just keep you in instability. Instability. It will get you absolutely nowhere. You won't know what you believe and why you believe it. Now, I'm going to ask you to hold your place in 1 Kings and turn over to the book of James. And for those of you who have studied the book of James, James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's a rubber meets the road kind of little letter. And some people have said that James is basically a general circular letter, perhaps, and... Um, But I would submit to you that James has a very targeted audience. And his audience is a group of first century Christians that have become double-minded. And that if you read the book of James with this major theme in mind, I believe that you will understand what James is saying. Take a look at just some sample verses. James 1, he's talking about a person who's praying for wisdom Verse seven, but this man is—he's un, uncommitted. He doesn't really believe in God. That man, James one seven, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being what a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, the word double-minded there in Greek literally means double-souled. Speaks of two souls, and it's been captured in the idea, if you've ever seen a person who paints their face on two different sides, kind of has a line down the middle, and they're one character on one side of their face, and then they turn, and then they're another character. Maybe a male or female, maybe a good character and a bad character, whatever it may be. This is kind of the idea. They are double-souled. They're two-souled or two-faced they make a claim on one hand to be a believer, but on the other hand, they don't really live like a, like a believer, and they're unstable eight in all their ways. Let me give you a sample of what's going on with these people. Go over to chapter two. Here's one example. They show personal favoritism to one of James. And when uh, a man comes into the assembly who's dressed to the nines, if you will, fine clothing, wealthy, they have a special seat for him, but not for the poor man. The poor man's got to go over there somewhere because he doesn't have the same clothes, etc. Look at verse six, James two. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Skip down to verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has a said faith, but he has no works? Can that or that kind of faith save him? Notice, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Chapter 3, the famous treatment of the tongue. Flip over to verse 9. James is decrying the fact that they are misusing the tongue and he warns that many should not be teachers because of the propensity we have with this little part of our body to let it do not so great things. He says, for example, in verse eight, chapter three, no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, here's the double-souled, double-minded person, we bless our Lord and Father And with it, we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Question mark. Do you see the theme here, brethren? Brethren, The theme is double-mindedness, and it's coming out in the actions of this early church. And I believe that James has written a very specific letter to a very specific situation. And he's saying, look, you claim to know God, but you're running people down with your mouth. You're, You're treating people very poorly, In fact, you are in love with the world, which is chapter four. Just take a peek. We're just doing some sample verses, but here's what he says, 4-4, and it sounds harsh, but here it is, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Skip down to verse eight. Here's the solution. Thank God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Here's our theme. Purify your hearts, you what? Double-minded. Now, we know that the Spirit in verse 5 jealously desires with longing our single-hearted devotion. I think that's verse 5. And then here's more hope. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, But what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil who would love you to be double-minded, and he will flee from you. And then to chapter 5, and I'll just um, give you a sample. As James gets into the final chapter, we're going to have a a prayer about healing. We'll come back to that. But he's going to take our character, Elijah. He says, 17, chapter 5. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was just like us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now notice how he ends the letter. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. My brethren, if you see people straying, the heart is to bring back the double-minded all the way back now to First Kings 17. I think you can see that James is hitting these themes and he will talk about Elijah. And I will say to you about Elijah that you will not find a prayer about rain in the text referenced by James. There is no rain prayer, no recorded rain prayer. I want you to be on the lookout for two prayers that Elijah prays, and then we're gonna ask some questions as we kind of uh, come and, and, and button up this message, but let's pick it up in verse one. Elijah confronts Ahab, and he says, there's gonna be no rain as the Lord lives before whom I live my life, 17.1, before whom I stand and you stand, Ahab, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. I get the feeling that Elijah dropped the bomb, dropped the microphone, <laughs> turned around and left. And I don't know how Ahab responded. I don't know if Jezebel was sitting there. I don't know if they laughed at him. <laughs> no rain. We serve the rain god, Baal. You know, Baal, they found uh, little uh, statues of him in archaeology. And the little statues show him holding a lightning bolt. He was the rain god. This is what he did. He brought rain and thunder and fertility to the land. And so maybe they laughed at him. Maybe they thought, oh, yeah, sure. We serve the rain god. I'm sure Jezebel can say a little prayer to the rain god and rain will come. But Elijah said, it's not gonna come. And we read from the book of James for three and a half years, it would not rain. It sounds vaguely familiar to a state that we live in, but we won't go there. We did have a little bit of rain recently, thank God. But here we are. So the rain incident is something that James ties to a prayer of faith in James 5.15. We'll come back to that. But in Canaanite religion, Baal was the rain god. And God had warned his people in two places. Just write these down for your notes. Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17. And there's other places. He said, beware lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. That's Deuteronomy eleven sixteen and seventeen, in the famous prayer of Solomon after the building of the temple, the Lord appeared to Solomon, Second Chronicles seven twelve through fourteen at night and said to him, "I've heard your prayer. I've chosen chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Listen to these words: If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people." And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and what? Heal their land. Now, James is making a direct link from Elijah's time to a New Testament church. And there's a drought in the land, a spiritual drought has hit our land, a syncretism that has permeated different parts of the world and now seems to be on our shores. Tony Marita puts it this way. We live in a similar time as Elijah in which people worship a little bit of everything but not the living God exclusively. A little God, a little horoscope, a little TBN, a little pop psychology, a few conspiracy theories, aliens, zombies, new ageism, naturalism, and more. They may want God at their death but they live every day as functional naturalists or materialists. As a result of their twisted theology, immorality is normalized. In our day, just like the days of Elijah, he lived in a day like ours when people call evil good and good evil, close quote. And Marita wrote that, I think, about 10 years ago. He hadn't even seen what happened in the last decade. And what's happened in the last decade has happened at breakneck speed. And here we are in a country that I know we love and we have appreciated and we know the light of God has been here. What do we do now? I heard Alistair Begg preaching and he was talking about the time of Jonathan Edwards when he was praying for a great awakening in America. Edwards and some of his buddies were attending Harvard and I think even Yale. And they started Princeton, listen to this, Basically, to oppose the secular ideas that were beginning to permeate Harvard. And Edwards and some of his friends began to beat the gates of heaven to pray for a great awakening in America. Started a school to make sure it was in line with biblical principles. And what happened in America? A great awakening occurred. Amen? It's possible for our country to return to the Lord. But I want to say this to you, and I want to say this as clearly as I can say it. You will watch major Bible characters, Moses with the Pharaoh, Elisha and Elijah with the kings. You will watch uh, different characters like the Apostle Paul, John the Baptist, and Jesus with the Sanhedrin, all interacting with political leaders of their time and confronting politics. Now, some people believe that you shouldn't mention any of this kind of stuff from the pulpit. Look, someone is going to dictate the values and beliefs of this country. And if we stay cloistered behind the walls of the church and bury our ha- heads in the sand, we're go- this country is going to be gone, folks. So I will just tell you this. Uh, Just read your Bible with this in mind. Think about Daniel. Think about others who interacted with political leaders. And what they did is they called them back to God. And that's what we need to do as well. I'm not saying we need to make it all about that. I think those of you who are here know our focus is on the Lord and his word. Amen? But you're going to bump into these ideas when you're reading through your Bible. You're going to see them everywhere. Because this is what happens when you're living your faith. So the word of the Lord came to him, and you can see that Pastor Michael will have to move quickly. 17 to 1 Kings, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward. Now God is speaking to Elijah. And hide yourself by the brook Kerith, which is east of the Jordan. Uh, obviously, Ahab's going to want your head as he starts to see no rain coming down. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook. I have commanded the ravens. It should have been the stealers here, but... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, that's a very poor humor. But anyway, I've commanded the ravens. By the way, an unclean bird is a raven to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens, if you want to write down a, a reference, Leviticus eleven fifteen calls a raven an unclean bird, brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So now Elijah goes and he's hiding himself. And God says, I'm gonna take care of you. Just go over by this brook. And for a while, he's taken care of, but then the brook dries up. This is uh, maybe a word for us to remember that when the land, uh, when drought happens or something impacts the land, even a prophet of God is not immune to being part of the suffering. But God was taking care of him. And here's a spiritual point. If you take Elijah and ask the question, what does it need? What needs to happen to come back from double-mindedness when there's a drought? We need the living waters of the Holy Spirit in our life. Amen? We need the word of God. We need the water of life to come back into the dry places because there are droughts everywhere. And so Elijah had to move on. And the word of the Lord came to him saying, arise, go to Zarephath. This is outside the land of Israel now which belongs to Sidon, that's Jezebel's home turf, that's Baal's home turf, and stay there. Now he says, behold, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. First the ravens, now a widow outside the land. Jesus references this story in Luke chapter four. And the widow may have been praying, if there's a true God out there, please send someone to my home. And so here is Elijah. And he goes there. And he arose, went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, notice, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm, I'm an, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. She's basically saying the cupboard's bare, man. We got nothing left. I'm assuming that she had been praying. She acknowledges the Lord in verse 12. I don't think she's a believer. She says, he's your God. And Elijah said, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Do, go and do as you have said, but make a little bread cake from it first we to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? Bring it out to me, and afterward you make one for yourself and for your son. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the words of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days, I'm sure for quite a long time. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Now, a spiritual application is we're all like empty bowls of flour. (laughs) You can think of the fact that we need manna. We need the word of God every day. We need God to fill these empty vessels. And he does that with his word. But you got to open his word for it to fill you up. Amen? Start your morning with a psalm that matches the day of the month. Do something to get your heart aligned with the kingdom of God. You've got to do it, manna for today. McGee puts it this way. You know, Elijah and the widow probably stuck their heads into that empty flower barrel every morning and sang the doxology. (laughs) And God sustained them out of an empty flower barrel. The barrel was as fertile as the plains of Canada or the cornfields of Iowa. Here is another lesson. We need to learn. Even when the land seems to be without the essentials that we need, God can supply. We are empty flower bowls, but God can fill us up. Now, it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. His sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And so she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. Have you come to bring my sins to the surface? Is this why you arrived? Now, we need to remember that the woman forgot that the only reason that she and her son were alive is because Elijah showed up. And the miracle of that flower kept coming and the oil kept coming. But sometimes in our trials, we can forget about the faithfulness of God that's right in front of us every day. And so she said, have you come to... Is this basically payment for my sins? Sometimes we feel that way when bad stuff happens. And so he said to her, give me your son. And then he took him from her bosom, carried him up to the upper room. This is very similar to the uh, miracle that Elisha did in 2 Kings, where he was living. He laid him on his own bed and he called to the Lord and said, now here's one of the recorded prayers of Elijah. Just keep this in mind. O oh Lord, my God. I pray thee, let this child's life return to him. Short to the point. Is that the prayer that is being referred to in James 5? I don't think so, but it is a prayer of faith, is it not? And if I was gonna pray a prayer of faith and someone had been anointed with oil in the name of the Lord, we'll get there in a second, a verse that most of you know, this might be the prayer of Elijah. Oh Lord, bring life back to this person in Jesus' name. Very simple, very to the point. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child returned to him, praise God, and he revived. I believe that this child outside of the land of Israel is a picture of what God wants to do inside the land of Israel. He wants to bring revival. Amen? the miracles are getting greater they're getting more challenging yet god is providing from you know uh, the ravens and from the the flower barrel and now raising the dead god is a god of revival and revival is not for the world it's for the church amen, amen? it's about being revived back to life and so elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. You can imagine how uh, joyous she was. Elijah said, you see, your son is alive. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth, amen. A great awakening in the house of a widow in Zarephath, exactly what God wants to do in the land, but they've kicked him out of the land. Jesus is in his hometown synagogue in Luke 4, and he refers to the story of Naaman and uh, 2 Kings and the story of this widow in 1 Kings. And he says, basically, God worked outside the land, and people loved everything Jesus was saying until he brought these stories up, and then they were angry. They were mad. Why? Because Jesus said, a prophet is welcome everywhere except... In his own hometown. Do you know that Jesus was, wasn't even welcome in his own hometown? Elijah the prophet apparently not welcome in the halls of the palace. Yet he represented God. Now we're going to have to move quickly. And I said we'd do a flyover. Here's what happens next. 1 Kings 18 Verse 1. Now, it came about after many days. We have learned that it's going to be three and a half years that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Now, God's going to move. And so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now, the famine was severe in Samaria, things were really bad. Gas prices were high. Inflation was hitting all the shelves of the store. No rain. Lakes were getting low. Yeah, I don't have to tell you, do I? So Ahab called Obadiah. Now, Obadiah is a man stuck between two worlds. He's a steward over the house of Ahab and Jezebel. But we're going to find out. We're not going to. I would encourage you to read this on your own. But he, he fears the Lord greatly, this man Obadiah, and he, he helped hide and feed the prophets that Jezebel was trying to kill all of them. He's a good man, but he works for a very secular company. <laughs> and I know many of you are probably in the shoes of Obadiah today. The world has become an avalanche of all these different values that have now been put on a pedestal And if you're not on board, maybe a lot of things are in jeopardy in terms of your work and other things. And the question becomes, what do you do in situations like that? You have the Elijahs. You can call them in professional ministry. You have the Obadiahs. He seems to love God. You'll see negative opinions about him in some commentaries. But I believe Obadiah was trying to fight the good fight. Maybe he was even a a plant for the Lord in the house of Ahab and Jezebel. Tough to see all the wickedness going on, yet he loved the Lord. To sum up the story, here's what happens. Ahab asks Obadiah to start searching for anything they can find to take care of their horses and mules. Any water, any, any grass, whatever they can find. And they both go searching in opposite directions. And as Obadiah's walking along, Elijah shows up and he says, I'm going to show up and I'm going to meet with your boss today. And Obadiah has a tough time believing it. He's like, oh, what if I tell him and then you pull a no-show? He's been looking for you for a long time. No, I'm coming. So Obadiah goes and tells Ahab. We skip all the way down now to verse 16. Obadiah went to meet Ahab, told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah, 17. And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, is this you, you troubler of Israel? It's your fault that there's a drought in the land. Really? Really? I thought the book of the law said, if you follow other gods, God will send a drought. But here we have the classic blame shift. It's your fault. It's the spiritual guy's fault that we're in the drought that we're in. And Elijah said, I have not troubled Israel, 18. You and your father's house have because you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you've followed the Baals. Now he's gonna propose a contest. Ahab doesn't respond I think he might be kind of quiet because he knows he's guilty. Now then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. I count that as 850 to one. Time for a contest. Everybody likes a contest, right? We're going to go up to Mount Carmel. By the way, historians say Mount Carmel, though there was an altar of the Lord there at one point, Was Baal's bluff. It was a mountain for idolatrous worship. It was considered a sanctuary for Baal and other false gods and goddesses. So here's what Elijah says. We're going to play in your home stadium, Baal's home stadium. We're going to play by what should be the the most powerful Uh, virtues that Baal has he can bring lightning and rain at any time we'll play at your field 850 to one and we'll see who what God answers by fire deal yeah that sounds great and the contest is on can you imagine showing up there 850 to one you got your best camel's hair you know coat on you show up with the belt and what do you say to the people Mary had a little, (laughs) I mean, what do you do? I mean, it's intimidating, isn't it, to be the only one? Can you imagine? But Elijah has the power and boldness of God. And he confronts the people. He came near to all the people, 21, and said, how long, literally, will you limp between two opinions? How long will you stay on the fence If God is God, serve him. Baal is God, serve him. How long will you be double-minded? I heard a great illustration from coaching Little League Baseball. When I was coaching Little League Baseball, the, the kids would get in the batter's box. Half of them would be in the dugout. Half of them would be at home plate. They wanted to hit the ball, but they were stepping in what we call as coaches, the bucket. When you step in the bucket, you want to hit the ball, but you're afraid of getting hit by the ball. So you have one foot in the dugout and one foot in the batter's box. It is hard to be successful when you step in the bucket. Amen? And that is what a lot of us are trying to do. One foot in Christ. One foot in the world. How long, can I ask you? Are you gonna do that? I heard a great illustration. Pastor said, you know, it's kind of like the classic sitting on a fence. You have one foot in Christ Too much of Christ to be happy in the world. Too much of the world to be happy in Christ. And there you are on the fence, and you're miserable. Now picture a picket fence. Now you got it. (laughs) You're unstable. Yeah, that's a good time for tears right there. (laughs) Unstable in all your ways. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. I did it. It's a terrible image. (laughs) And so he confronts the people. I'm the only one left. And so I'm not going to give you the whole uh, scene because you know it. They have the contest. <laughs> and here's what happens. They cry out to Baal from morning till midday. Baal, Baal, bail us out of this one, Baal. <laughs> Show up. By the way, ancient writings tell us that Baal could go on a journey He could die. He could be on vacation. (laughs) He could be in the restroom. There's even an ancient story that says Baal's sister was looking for him and couldn't find him because he was out hunting. And I'm not kidding. So when they're jumping up and down, you have to realize they think it's possible that Baal's either napping on vacation or dead. And that's why they're jumping up and down and cutting themselves ritually, gushing the blood out. They're trying to wake him get his attention. But he bailed on them. (laughs) Thank you, Brother Bird. That was perfect timing. All the prayers and the gimmicks in the world can't wake up a false god. All the gimmicks in the world that whoever it is will do for hours on end will do nothing if you're crying out to a god that doesn't exist and that's what they did, and Bell didn't answer, and the God of the Bible answered by fire, and here's the prayer. 36. It came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah, about a 30-second prayer compared to hours of their crying out and jumping up and down. He came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, he had Before this, repaired the altar broken down. He took 12 stones representing the covenant God. Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, 37. Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Do you see the theme Returning people back to the Lord. If that's your heart, I believe God will honor prayers like that. Now, here's what happens God answers by fire. The fire fell 38, and when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now, I would like to tell you that that really lasted, but unfortunately, it didn't. But here they repent, and God will give grace to the humble. Now, turn all the way to the book of James, and we'll, we'll be done. Now, as James deals with the, book, the idea of double-mindedness, we come to a very interesting, bristly section in our Bibles. Most of you are familiar with it. It says, it says, if there's anyone sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them come and pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is James 5, 14 and 15. And the prayer of faith will restore the sick. It seems categorical. And pastors have asked the question, commentators, what is it doing here? What's that prayer doing here in a book that's all about repenting from double-mindedness and getting your life right? Why, why this person who's sick? Take a look. Is 13, is anyone among you suffering? James 5, 13, he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's to sing praises. Is anyone sick? He must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And then the example of Elijah and the rain. But no prayer about rain in the, in the text. The last scene we see in that chapter about prayer is Elijah's got his head down between his knees and he seems to be praying, but there's no recorded prayer. Brethren, I, I believe there's something important here that we need to see. You see, this passage in James 5 has caused a lot of problems because many times there's been someone sick. We've gone to them with oil, anointed them in the name of the Lord, prayed over them in faith, and they haven't gotten well. Many times it has not worked, yet the text seems categorical. What is going on here? Did we have the wrong oil? Did we have improperly ordained elders? Was there not, and this is the real kicker, was there not enough faith in the prayer? Was there a lack of faith on the part of the recipient or on the part of the prayers or both, which adds additional layers of guilt to someone who's laying on a sickbed? What is going on here? And why does James bring it up in concert with the Elijah story? Here's what I think is quite possible. I think that James is saying the people in this first century church have treated one another very poorly. They have acted like the world. They have run people down with their mouth. They've made class distinctions. They've walked without any fruit of faith whatsoever in their lives. And in some of their cases, God has disciplined them with sickness. Now, some of you say, really? Now, let me qualify this. We live in a fallen world and people get sick. And not every sickness is a result of sin. But in some cases, God disciplines his wayward people through putting us on our back. This is confirmed in 1 Corinthians 11, which says that some of you are sick and some of you have died in Corinth because they were making a mockery of the communion... uh, a meal the the love feast the rich were getting there early they were eating all the food drinking all the wine they were intoxicated there the poor showed up and there was no food left and paul says you read this later 1st corinthians 11:27 and following some of you are sick and some of you have died because you've done this now i'm i'm talking extreme cases here unrepentant i'm not going to act like a believer kind of sin where finally God says, I love you so much, I'm gonna put you on your back. Now, what happens here? The elders go to that person representing the church. This is a view I want you to consider of James 5, keeping in mind the link to 1 Kings. The person confesses their sin to the elders representing the church. Maybe they've even sinned against the elders. They say, I've done wrong. The oil In every other part of the Bible, except for Mark chapter 6, oil always represents consecration, the anointing of priests and kings for single-hearted devotion to the Lord. What are you saying, Pastor Michael? I'm saying this, that the oil may be present to say, I am recommitting my heart to single-minded devotion to the Lord. And in that context, that may well be the prayer of faith, raising that person up out of that spiritual and even physical condition. Everybody with me? I'm throwing this out there for your consideration as we've seen the link from 1 Kings to James and then, of course, to James chapter 5. What is the solution? Well, healing came for the people of Israel when their divided affections were laid down and they got their lives right with the Lord. James puts it this way in 4.10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Oh, God, as I preach these words, I find myself guilty. Guilty often of being double-minded. Please forgive me. This text has me weighing my motives has me asking some deeper questions about the way I treat other believers, what I do with my mouth, how I look at people. Lord, none of us in this room want to be double-minded. We want you to have our whole heart, yet we know, oh Lord, the battle that wages. And especially in a culture like ours with the phones and the ideas that Constantly bombard us, oh Lord. To be singly devoted to you is a challenge. We want to, but we find ourselves oftentimes another law working in our members, oh God. We want to make things right because if we judge ourselves, we won't be judged. And James says the judge is standing at the door. Father, this is no time for us to be playing church and God, would you forgive us if, if that would be true of us, help us, Lord. And if we feel any measure of conviction, it's because we, we don't want that. So would you help us, oh Father? I'm gonna ask you to just take a moment to let the word of God do its work in your heart. That you would heed what the spirit of God might say to you in these moments. You'd find comfort in the finished work of the gospel of Jesus that he paid it all and we're forgiven because of that. But but our Lord loves us and he will discipline his people. And the book of James is written to apparently gospel-believing believers who have gone astray. So while we rest in the gospel, we still want to walk out our faith. Oh, Father, as we just take a moment Oh, how we need these moments a little bit more in our lives. Would you speak to our hearts? Help us see how we might apply the word of God so that we're not merely hearers, but we actually live out what you've called us to be. Pour your grace upon your your wonderful people here. In Jesus' name I pray.